This call may be recorded or transcribed. Hey, Robbie. Hi, Aaron. So it's been a few days. <laughs> yeah. When did we last oh, but I think it's been at least a week. Yeah. Can you hear me okay on this headset? Yeah, it's working so far. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Uh, if the road noise gets too bad, let me know. I'm just pulling out. So I'll see how this All is right. if I get on the freeway in a minute. All right. But at least I'm legal this way. <laughs> so where are you? Where are you driving back and forth from? Uh, the Telos Fellowship meeting in uh, Ferndale, uh, which was a watch party for the International Society for Frontier Missiology, which uh, was meets with the Evangelical Missiological Society in. Uh, Dallas. So we've been at a virtual, we've been virtually in a Dallas meeting from Ferndale, Washington. Okay. And were you presenting anything there or just watching? Yeah, no, uh, I was in a watching mode. Was any of the stuff that you were working on this last month leading up to this or being used for this or it was just in parallel? Um, well, this is the society, uh, the, the um, academic society related to frontier missions, which right. relates then to the prayer guide and all the rest of what we're doing. But it's at a very academic level, and part of the discussion we were just in in the business meeting, um, at least from this end, is uh, how can we recapture the vitality of the society as it started 40 years ago? Uh, without the academic overlay that kind of seems to be deadening things. Yeah, it's a hard problem. Um, there's something intrinsic in the nature of academics that is a gravitational pull away from relevance and utility. Right. And uh, that's exactly uh, that's a good description of what uh, experience. There were some, uh, you know, that were very uh, reliably and relevant and appropriate. Um, and then others that I just had trouble staying awake for. <laughs> not, that, not that that's unusual for me, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. What was the most exciting thing you learned? I'm going to mute for a little bit. Um, well, one uh, observation from a person I know personally who presented, a younger person, was that. Uh, Depression rate among boomers has uh, doubled among millennials and tripled uh, from boomers to uh, is it Gen Z, whatever the uh, last one is. And uh, that correlates um, with belonging not to institutions anymore, but to a device, a, a phone, or a mobile phone. The, that's your point of connection, uh, and the dopamine patterns of the uh, scroll of death, you know, just flipping endlessly through pages on the phone uh, is a role factor in that, and the, the meaningless and purposelessness that goes along with many people's lives actually fits with what I was 
was talking with you last time about the sense my belief that others could get captured the purposes of God in a way that lifts their life out of the mundane into a sense of meaning that uh, gives them something exciting to live for and have passion about. At least that's my dream and experience, you know, personally. And I dream of others enjoying that same experience. Uh, but then those of us who gather in a room like this for a watch party like this are the oddballs. And, uh, and even you fall asleep for half of it. <laughs> well, for the irrelevant portion, yeah. Well, but, but I mean, like, this is precisely the point, right? Is that, like, you know, everything is a trade off. And right. you're willing to put up with all that stuff because the other stuff is so awesome, but it's understandable that other people don't. Right, yeah. And this is the, it's funny, I was listening to a talk about bundling, talking about like the cable bundle. I don't know uh -huh. if you even had cable TV or had cable TV, but the idea of cable TV is you get news and sports and entertainment and you all as one giant bundle. Uh, right. And that's all going away into these different niches. But even those niches are themselves their own bundle. You know, Netflix has Korean soap operas and hit movies and original content and old TV shows recycled. And and they're talking about, like, it's actually frustrating. Like, people who are really into TV have, like, six subscriptions. And uh, it would be nice if you could go back into a bundle. And the thing is, I think the reason this is interesting is institutions have always been a bundle. Right. In that you have a bunch of different things together, and they all sort of cross-subsidize each other to create a critical mass that keeps the institution going. Right. Right, you know, the uh, Catholic Church was, you know, very much like this totally integrated thing where you had your theology, you had your weekly church services, you had your missional orders, you had your social services all bundled together. Right. And, you know, that all got exploded and you had governance, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and kingmaking and all that bundled in there. And that got mostly blown up in the Protestant church, but then they tried to reintegrate those things at the state level. And then, you know, America tried, uh, you know, I guess people argue about this. America seemed to move away from that, and then that had some positives and some negatives, and people argue about which of those were. And what you talked about millennials and Gen Z, like they do not consciously find their identity in any institution, right? They're not defined by the corporation they work for they're not defined by the church that they attend uh, they're rarely defined by the city they live in right. and all those were you know high brand equity high identity forming things at the time right, right. And, and, you know in academics you know being a physicist i was you know when you're in graduate school you identify and the people there they identify as physicists and if you call a physicist a chemist, it's a great insult. Right. You know, even if you think a lot of your other physicists are idiots, you know, or your colleagues are like totally wrong, they're still part of the tribe. Right. 
and that matters. Uh-huh. And the, um, the loss of that is profound, but it raises the question what the alternative is. Well, the, uh, the way the reality was described is that people now belong to their phone rather than an institution or a city or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, that's probably a little bit of oversimplification. I mean, I mean yeah. as a practical matter, people belong to platforms, right? Uh-huh. And I have a Google identity, uh, you know, that I use on for my documents. I have a Apple ID that I use to log into my phone. I have an identity on LinkedIn. You know, and so they're mediated through my phone, but not entirely, right? I mean, sometimes I go through my laptop uh, or my iPad, right? But it's interesting, right? These digital identities definitely feel more real and valuable than my physical identity. Like, I'm traveling to Europe tomorrow, and I'm uh-huh. leaving my physical thing here. I have my U.S. passport, which is a big deal. But, like, right. my life continues just fine, whereas if I lost right. my phone, or like the guy who got locked out of Google because he took a medical picture that was interpreted as pornography, like he lost his identity. He couldn't communicate with anybody. Wow. Okay. You know, you know so these yeah. days losing your digital identity is arguably comparable to what excommunication was in the Middle Ages or exile in a tribal society. And yeah. it's, it's just like, I don't know whether it's good or bad, better or worse. I don't know if that's even the right question. It's just fundamentally different. Yep. Yeah. So the question is, why does it matter? Why does it matter to you? Well, I'm not sure why that's an important question. I'm not sure that it matters. You said it really struck you. It seemed like it was significant that there's this shift. And you mentioned something about how you had these institutions that you belong to, like this Frontier Mission Society, and that you were hoping people could be part of something like that to give them this sense of meaning and purpose. Did I miss that? No, not to be part of the society, but to catch a a passion, a a sense of God's purpose. They're creating something. That God's doing something in the world that uh, right. rooted so, in, ah, rooted ah, this is good. This is, gets right into the title of this uh, uh, podcast. So the idea is you really want people to be part of a movement, right? Well, I, 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 I perceive and believe that God is up to something big and global and exciting, and that so. You know, uh, it strikes me that God could save, God, I mean, Jesus has already saved the world. But in terms of um, the sight of all nations, God could do it faster and quicker without involving people than through trying to use, you know, us uh, frail human vessels. But like parents with their children, we love our kids not because that helps us be more efficient, but because we value the relationships and the opportunity to grow closer and to develop our kids, right? And when I ask my kids for help with something that they don't know anything about, it's not to get the job done quicker, right? So I think God's purpose that he 
has created us to participate in is part of his desire. I think there's an enlistment theme in scripture along with the uh, salvation or the, you know, redemption theme in scripture. And that most, most that our, our church, the church in general, does not adequately introduce that enlisted theme along with the salvation theme. Let me repeat back what I heard you say to make sure I'm getting you, right? Is that God is doing something in the world, right? And a lot of institutions such as churches capture a subset of that, but it sometimes feels like they're missing an important part, perhaps even the most important part. They're catering to the self-focused part of that. What we get out well, of it. Well, let's let me let me bracket okay. right. exactly what the problem is. But yeah, the issue sure. is that there is okay. But or let me maybe rephrase that more. So, so first, yes, they're they're um, they're they're propagating an overly limited version of that vision. Is one is if you, so you agree with that part, right? Yeah, well, and I don't want to paint every church with the same brush, but yeah, that's the. But I mean, your your sense is right. Yeah, but that in general, that seems to be the case, and that, and in particular, your critique is that it seems to be very self-focused. I think I would push back on that a little bit. Okay. In that, um, like the word self is not well defined, right? If they're helping, if they're, you know, if you have a church where there's a real, I mean, there because. Uh, most churches tend to have a mix of consumers and ministers, right? And right. so the people who are doing ministry, run, you know, teaching Sunday school, running Bible studies, you can sort of say they're quote-unquote ministers. And then there's consumers, people who just show up and sit in the pews, right? And one could argue that that is a codependent relationship that they have, but, you know, the ministers aren't exact, the problem isn't precisely that they're focused on self. You can say that they're more inward focused on the needs of the church, but that's slightly different. Well, it seems to me that the business model encourages the pastor cultivating the congregational dependence on the church's ministry in order to ensure the funding of the, that model of let, let me let me rephrase that statement the institution okay. is designed to keep the institution going yeah yeah right just like yeah. academic institutions or the frontier mission society and are you familiar with Pernell's iron law of bureaucracy i don't know if i've no, seen you before yeah he says there are two types of people in every organization those who care about the mission of the organization and those who care about the survival of the organization. Okay. And what happens is the people who care about the survival of the organization end up holding all the reins of power. Uh-huh. Right? They're the ones who run for student council, who run for office, who cl- and they're the ones who keep the organization alive so that the other uh-huh. people can do their work of, of the mission. But eventually, of course, they get so obsessed with their status within the organization and making the organization turn out the way they want that they end up inevitably 
doing things that hinder or even oppose the mission of the organization. Right. Right. I mean, the Pharisees in Judaism are the perfect example of this. Right. Right. You know, if it wasn't for the Pharisees as the heirs of Nehemiah, one of my heroes, like the Jewish uh -huh. people would not have survived as a distinct ethnic group. You know, it would have evolved into the sort of anarchic mass of the Samaritans. If you didn't have, you know, jerks who were really trying to draw a hard line. But okay. at the end, they ended up killing Christ. Yep. And this is the paradox of institutions, is that if you don't have institutions, I was talking with somebody about, he was working with two Christian ministries that had merged, and one of them was really relational and touchy-feely, and one of them was really kind of strict and, and rigid and, and hierarchical. Um, right. And, like, he didn't like all the hierarchical people. He preferred the, but the touchy-feely people, their organization failed. And so they uh -huh. had to join the hierarchical groups to have somewhere to meet because someone had to actually say, you're going to get this stuff done, you're going to show up at this meeting, the room's going to be booked. And, like, if you don't have that, you don't have an organization. You don't have a community. Yeah. And so, anyway, this is actually the thing I want to talk to you about, but I want to let you finish if there's anything else you wanted to share before I segue. Oh, well, another related problem we talked about is that the financial incentive of the medical profession is not the health of people. And uh, that seems to be a parallel, but we don't have to go any further into that. Um, I, yeah, so I, I've covered nothing related to what things I'm thinking about. So what do you think about? Or where do you want to go? And I may pass through a dead spot here in the drive. Can you still hear me? Maybe I'm in the dead spot now. No, yeah, I can hear you. I just lost the mute button on my... Car, so okay. can you hear me now? Yeah, so you remember me telling you about Joel McGill and All America? No. So this is something that came out of um, one of these evangelism things where they divided up the world among all these Christian ministries. And I think Campus Crusade and YWAM got together and sort of took everything else. And okay. they started a group called All America with the goal of evangelizing the United States. All right. And, yeah, I said, you know, it's one of the, sorry? Vaguely, I, have, I, have, I feel like you said that before, but I don't remember. Yeah, anyway, right, yeah. So I've had a few meetings with him and our friend Ted, and they're doing a bunch of stuff in California. But uh, about a month ago, uh, he, he texted me and said, hey, Ernie, you've been on my heart, let's talk. <laughs> And what's really interesting to me about All America is they do three things. One is they do um, uh, a branding piece of trying to get people to, you know, talk about like we're, you know, doing uh, in, in different ministries and getting them to work together. Secondly, they do a uh, infrastructure piece of trying to share information. And third, and most importantly, they actually do spiritual reconciliation. So they uh -huh. are deeply relational, deeply um, 
spiritual in the sense of, you know, they want to get people to actually love each other the way Jesus does. Okay. Um, and it, it's been really, and, you know, they're really focused on uh, the fruit of the spirit. Like, how do we, <laughs> you know, humble ourselves to receive from God? Like, you and I did the Galatians thing, right? About descent and the fruit of the spirit. And I think that part of that came out of my talking with Joel about this real emphasis on the, the fruit of the spirit rather than the gifts of the spirit of living together okay. in harmony. As, as God. Okay. So that, so anyway, uh, they have been talking about doing some sort of data thing. And I now work for a data startup and I, you know, I have an interest in this whole space. And so he said, you know, God's been like putting something on my heart. And like every week, I meet some random person who has an extraordinary background, perfectly positioned to do something in this space. Just randomly people dropping in his lap for no obvious reason because they're like, hey, I just happen to be doing this. I just helped the government run this. Or I just finished selling a startup that does all these things. And I'm looking for what I can do next to help the kingdom of God. So this is the way his life is, right? He he lives very serendipitously. And he says, I thought of you. And I was thinking, you should meet this other guy, uh, Corey. I won't give his full name until I can check uh-huh. this with him, but I'll share some of our stories. So he he, uh, uh, he he texted me, and we set up a time, and we had a sort of introductory conversation where we just shared our story of how we got here. Uh-huh. And that was really good. And what I told him was I feel like he's been doing in practice what I've been doing in theory, trying to uh-huh. bring people together, bring them around Jesus, He's worked with large organizations and governments on massive data systems for, like, disaster relief and things like that. And so I said, we should get together and we should try and come up with some questions and, like, a document to really figure out what it is that God wants us to do. Uh So I met with him, I think it was actually just Wednesday, a couple days ago. And I jotted down some notes, but I was kind of curious where he was going to go with this. And he asked three questions. And the first one was, what has God put on your heart to do? Right. And the, uh, what I wrote down, uh, you know, probably not just so much from stuff that you and I have talked about, but um, it was, uh, well, then you have a vision statement. What, is the world, what would the world look like that you want to create? And I said, I want a world where every member, every member of the body of Christ has personalized, actionable data and how best to grow themselves and others closer to Jesus. Okay. Right? Goal is that, and so, but what I said, this is where it gets funky, is that I say, well, actually, I wrote members and individuals and personalize, but I'm trying to break out of that Western mindset of everything's about the individual. What I really right. want is every part of the body of Christ to have customized it, and that's fractal all the way up and down. Yeah. Yeah, that, right, you know, at the whole system, at the denominational level, at the congregational level, at the small group level, at the individual level, and all the way down to my individual parts, right, all the different parts of my psyche that war against each other. Like, I want each of them to be able to find a way to reconcile and connect. And he said, huh, it's funny you should say that. So he was, I don't think he went to college, but he's been studying physics and emergence and chaos theory and complexity and all these things at a fairly Uh deep level from what I can tell. But the craziest thing, and the title of this episode, he says, huh, funny you should mention that. 
because he went and found this, I think it's prophetic art that someone gave him 10 years ago, which is a fractal picture of a cross. And that it's a cross composed of all these little crosses of different sizes and scales, each of which is also composed of different smaller crosses in this sort of wispy cloud-like constellation. Uh, uh, which I call the fractal chiastic, chiastic means in the shape of a cross, uh, uh-huh. or the fracchiastic cloud. And I looked at it and I said, that is our org chart, and that is our network architecture. And precisely this point that we talked about with institutions, like this is a paradox. If you don't yeah. have an institution, things just fall apart, they fragment, right? You don't have coherency and consistency. Right? There are lots of organic churches and lots of organic spiritual movements which faded away after a generation because they weren't held uh-huh. together by anything, right? All the history we have, all the continuity we have is from these powerful, enduring, and often corrupt institutions, right? Right. And it's like, you know, you can bemoan it, but like, you know, when you look what the world was like before those institutions, it's like, okay, net, net, it's better. But over time, institutions become more and more uh, consumed by type one behavior of sustaining the institution and less and less type two behavior of fulfilling the mission, right? Whether it's a company or a church or an industry or anything else, and you're seeing that play out in the foreign mission society. <laughs> Right, that's just inevitably the the gravitational pull. And so, what? So I said, you know, what's interesting, and I think the opportunity. Uh, yeah, I think I told you before is that you know Jesus didn't think he could stick around for more than three years without creating an unhealthy dependency on the part of the disciples. What makes us think we can do any better? And so what I suggested to him, and this is a mark of this guy's maturity and that he, like, didn't even blink. I said, you know, I would love to build something, and we, like, design it so that no one's in charge, but we have a team, like the three of us, like I have when I did a discipleship startup, and we work to build this thing over three years, and then we disappear. Right? Like, this thing is designed to be... It is set up so that it's designed to destroy itself or to self-eliminate itself over time. And that's how you model how you yeah. want everyone else to behave. They should come together, do what needs to be done, and then dissolve. And as long as people are willing to keep doing that, the thing perpetually renews itself. And if they don't, it all falls apart. And that sucks, but that's better than the alternative. For this thing you want to build. And that was this picture of a cross with nothing at the center, just various crosses of different sizes sort of near the center that kind of act as an anchor for the design and the shape. But it's all very decentralized. And so this is the idea, this is the intriguing possibility. Sorry, did I lose you? Oh, I was just saying I'd love to see the graphic. And uh, it reminds me of Wycliffe's management program, at least at one time when somebody came and trained us, that they have their managers in a position for three years, 
and then they have to rotate to another position. And I don't know if that was corporation-wide or just uh, some particular subset, but within three years, you can have a vision and pursue it and wrap it up and hand it over. And uh, they found that to be a productive uh, time frame. So another point of reference. It tends to happen, though, like with organic church movements where they try, like, when we're doing this research, I don't know if you were part of this, we spent some time looking at alternate church models and, you know, non-hierarchical churches. And what we discovered was the only churches that maintained a sort of, like, small groups have to stay small and keep dividing required a really strong autocratic center to force people to keep dividing. Right? Because otherwise a good small group would grow, and either it would hit a certain point and stop growing, but everyone was comfortable and they'd stay together, or it would grow up enough to become a church. But like on their own, the groups wouldn't naturally split up and keep splitting. Right? You needed a figure at the top to force people to keep dividing into small groups, or persecution. <laughs> Or you just stop growing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think there are some counter-examples counter where it has worked without an autocratic, but as a general rule, I'd say you're exactly right. Yeah. So can you give me any concrete examples? Because I'm still looking if you know one. Um, yeah, I think it's called the Antioch Network of Churches, or Antioch Church out of Waco, Texas. Um, their, uh, their church was... Uh, Years a couple of years ago, and the author's name I'm not capturing at the moment, but his uh, his book is The Mega Church to Movement. Um, and originally they had a vision of growing from a thousand people to ten thousand people. When they hit that, they said, "Well, you know, how do we get to a hundred thousand and a million?" And uh, realized that they had to decentralize and fragment, and uh, they succeeded in launching a growing movement around the world. And then I think there's actually a separate group that's the Antioch Network of Churches that saw a million people baptized last year through the Blind Church Network. Yeah, so I'm curious, um, is, um, like, what is the thing that keeps the network going? Right. Is there still like a returning to the mothership once a year to renew the values and, you know, what is the thing that, like, the, the thing is, is how do you get decentralized without becoming just purely distributed? Right. Like Protestantism is distributed. Everyone just does their own thing. Yeah, yeah. If you're decentralized, you have to have some sort of a center of authority, even if you devolve power. And I'm curious how they do that. Um, I think sort of like YWAM, the cultivation of listening to Jesus, collaborating in groups, the mutual submission, um, and obedience to what they sense collectively Jesus taught. Right, I mean, and those are great, right? But, um, you know, the... It's different than what I would call, so, I mean, those things, those things are really good at what they do, 
right? Um, the thing that is the uh, this is a so this so the the phrase that I've been playing with is that if the goal is to actually reach every believer, right, every part, some part of the body of Christ, the idea is you need to figure out what is the essential dynamic that this group needs and model it and then scale it, right? So I'm stuck, and this I'm idea, stuck on I'm stuck on your phrase. Uh, if the goal is to reach every believer, I, I'm thinking in terms of reaching non-believers. So, uh, oh, sorry. I'm, okay, so let me let me, let me finesse that for you. I don't have any interest in helping people become Christians. I mean, there is. Let me rephrase. I really want people. Okay, I want people to be connected to Christ. Yes. So we're we're looking. Okay. I mean, the phrase, phrase we and now we're I'm now using is we're, we're seeking to lead people to follow Jesus, um, but not right. to make them. Right. I don't like the oh, word yeah. follow Jesus because that's one third of discipleship. What word would you What would you prefer as a as a descriptor for the goal? Well, um, I, I, I've been. It's it's not great, but I, I go with closer to Jesus. Real close Growing to closer Jesus. to Jesus. Okay, so you don't like his phrase, follow me. Um, well, 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 the context of that phrase that I'm most interested in where he says, if you want to be my disciple, right, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And following right. me without denying yourself and taking up your cross is my gripe about the church. <laughs> well, okay, but that's, right? that's a defective form of following. That's not really following. It, I mean, no, but again, it, it, the way Jesus, Jesus defined it in that context as yeah, yeah. one-third of discipleship. So making disciples of Jesus, I would actually be okay with um, in that context. But it's, it, it doesn't matter. But my, my point was is actually that the – and this is this was not obvious or it was kind of subtle. Like the goal is to give every member, everyone who is currently connected to Jesus, help them understand how to grow themselves and others closer to Jesus. Right, okay. Right, and so the idea is that that dual mission is, is really at the heart of this, is this thing of how do we grow closer to Jesus in a way that helps those who are further away or outside also grow closer to Jesus. Okay. Right? And yeah. the idea is that that's the important thing, right? And so the 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 distinction between helping people in my church who are stuck on a very traditional form of Christianity versus helping my non-Christian friends uh, who don't have any formal association with Christianity, it's not that different to me. Uh huh. And in right. some ways, the yeah. Sorry, you go ahead. Go ahead. Saying something? Uh, no, so, and, and like it's not that different from dealing with my own wounded parts, uh, right? Uh, the traumatic subsets of my psyche that are angry at God or you know bitter towards other people. 
like dealing with those parts is if anything harder than dealing with people in the church uh you know who are stuck on a particular manifestation so to me it's all the like what what can we do for whatever addition of we to help us grow closer to christ in a way that helps them for whatever definition of them grow closer to christ so that's how i kind of connect those two points so you know as i'm processing this um generally efforts to help believers um, draw closer and others draw closer end up working in impacting within the uh, social relationships that already have, or at least within their own sector, but they generally don't
is, okay, we're here, we have a certain experience of Jesus. What is the thing that is most foreign from us that we see as furthest from Jesus, and how can we apprehend more of Jesus so we can connect with them? I guess that to me is in fact the fundamental dynamic. And I think that's how we address your problem. So an example that came up today in the Society for Friendship Missiology, the Armenian Christian that was founded by a church in uh, genocide, whatever it was. The general attitude is uh, the only good Muslim is a dead Muslim. you know, vaporize them, call them fire, and uh, that. So the the redemption of those kind of Armenian Christians is love the church the way Jesus loved them, right? Yeah. So Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan, they told to the Jews and the Pharisees. Right. It's, um, I was conversing with our friend Bill, and I said, like, you know, the two things in the book of Acts that I think most deeply and profoundly represent the nature of Christ is Ananias, I think it was Ananias, the guy in Antioch, who went and prayed over Paul, the killer of Christians. Right. Right. He had to go and, and bless the person that he feared most in the world. And had the yep. most reason to hate. Yeah. And that unlocked the gospel. And then the second one, which may be even, you know, harder for us to relate to, but even more profound, is Peter going to the house of Cornelius. What's interesting and to me about you, both both those examples, God very specifically and directly intervenes to direct the people to do that. It's not a strategy that they came up with. Even Peter, who had walked with Jesus for three years, didn't figure it out. He had this unexpected vision revelation prompting him, along with the invitation of the, you know, the men bringing the tent, etc. And Ananias, too, got as Ananias go. Ananias says, no, no, no. You don't understand, God. And, uh, yeah. And exactly right. This is like this is the this is the fundamental idea. Like this is the thing that is the most powerful, precisely because it is the thing that is most contrary to our flesh. Right? So There's a lot of Christianity and religion that is actually compatible with our flesh. But are you saying you can reduce this to a principle that uh, no. Ananias? That, no, there's uh, no talk with because he's hostile toward us, or that Peter could have, uh, you know, found Cornelius on his own without listening. It seems to me that this represents really fundamentally what it means to listen to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. No, I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the, yes, the point is precisely this is what it means to listen. And yet, most Christians most of the time, including myself, have uh-huh. an incredible number of psychological defenses 
that keep us from hearing the Holy Spirit. Right? I don't know if you've had this experience, but when I really get raw and naked before God, he will tell me to forgive somebody or sacrifice something or give up a belief that I have violently and viciously defended and protected for decades. Okay. Right? Uh, so is, like, that, yeah. is that different from what Peter was defending or what Ananias was No, that's exactly what it's like. So Peter, it was like that Peter, like literally for thousands of years, this is what right. it meant to follow God was to keep right. the law of Moses. And, and so it took after the, and like, you know, Peter, it's like Jesus had to like, they had to tell the story three times. God had to do that yep. thing with him multiple times. And he still backslid right. as Paul confronted him right. on in the book of Galatians, right? This is really, right. really hard stuff. But like, yeah. the, the point is, is that like, this is the hard problem to be solved. Like, this is the heart of the gospel. Is this how we deal with the other? And the point is that it's not like you can reduce it to a simple principle. It's like it's trying to accurately characterize the problem. Okay. Right? And, like, this is the thing that God wants to do. And, like I said, I will love the other as Jesus has loved me. And only when I experience Jesus loving me this way can I love the other that way. Right? Uh And if I'm surrounded by Christian terminology and theology – that justifies the flesh and demonizes the other right. because that is what the law does. And that's the thing that keeps us alive, right? The fact that we have this tribalism, the fact that we have the other, like we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, right? right. And don't become one of the bad guys, right? That is how you survive as an institution. Yeah. But that is precisely the challenge is how do you build a system I think a system's a fair word, uh, a system uh-huh. that has this contradiction at its center, uh, and it only works to the extent we keep getting better at practicing it. Rather than most right. institutions which do this once, like I was talking about fundamentalism with somebody the other day, like fundamentalism was a profoundly um, – generous act of trying to create all these, take all these different denominations and pulls them together around the essentials of the gospel. It was what a was really word? beautiful thing. Fundamentalism. What was it? Oh, fundamentalism. Right, okay. Right, in the early part of the 20th century, about 100 years ago, you know, the fathers of fundamentalism took all the Baptists and, kind of, and um, you know, evangelicals, and right. all these different splinter denominations said, like, hey, we need to focus on the fundamentals, that we take the Bible literally, we have a seven-day creation, that Scripture is canonical and nothing happened after that, and all the liberals and all the charismatics are on the outside, but we are focused on the fundamentals of the gospel. Right, okay. You know, and it was an incredibly generous, courageous, difficult bundling trying to pull all uh-huh. these groups together, and it was profoundly successful. And I think God was pleased that they did it. Unfortunately, right, it's like everything else. It's like they they took some really, really good things and set them above Christ. And eventually it turned really, really toxic. (laughs) Right? And this is the challenge, is that, you know, having all these role models, all these examples, to say, okay, I think we're finally at the place in human history 
where we can look back where we have well-documented case studies of all the movements that have gone before, how they succeeded right. and how they failed. We have an extraordinary level of technological sophistication, which allows uh -huh. us to decouple information transmission from power structures, right? Not okay. unlike what happened with the printing press in Martin Luther's day, right? Before that, uh -huh. the only way to communicate was through the blessing of those in power, right? Imperial right. communication was the only system centralized enough to share information. And like Western Europe got evangelized through the centralized dissemination of Pope Gregory. You know, okay. and it was really powerful and it was an amazing thing were all the heirs of that, but it had to pay a heavy tax, right? It had to make uh -huh. a deal with the devil, which ended up eventually corrupting it, right? Okay. And so the exciting idea is that we now have the privilege of standing on the shoulders of flawed giants and saying, can we build something that is the fracchiastic cloud, that is this uh -huh. uh, fractal, self-similar replication of the cross of Christ, where we leave this hole in the center where Christ himself is the ultimate authority, and if we can get that right, or maybe more generally, to the extent we get that right, we can create uh -huh. a self-replicating system where we inspire others to keep pressing closer to Jesus, to keep confronting their deepest others as we ourselves com confront our deepest others. And that that is the way that we actually saw, save the world and at the very least make different mistakes than what everyone else has made. Right. Hey, I, I provide, uh, uh, if we can wrap up before I head in, that's, uh, uh, we can, we, can we get to a conclusion? Yeah, this is a good time for me to wrap up as well. Okay. Um, that, this is the, the thing I'm with this guy, Corey, and what I said was, I think we need a third person, because that's biblical, and right. it also matches the experience I had with my startup seven years ago, where uh -huh. there are three of us who worked for a month on this startup. We had no titles. We had no hierarchy. We didn't even have a name for the group until like two days before we pitched it to some venture capitalists. Uh -huh. And it was this amorphous thing, like, hey, we're just here to listen to God and defer to one another and do the best yeah. we can. And it was extraordinary. Like in one month, we, you know, pivoted multiple times. We built an iOS app. We put together a pitch, all without any right. hierarchy or roles. And like, it's not sustainable yeah. in the long haul, but it was sustainable long enough to get to, to do the thing and to surface the issues that we needed to deal with that we couldn't. Right, this is all yeah. the emotional baggage and spiritual strongholds in my life that sabotaged our ability to connect with customers and succeed. And right. so the idea is, okay, now that I at least understand that problem better, if I can create a community where the, like, the whole goal is to help each of us identify what are the strongholds in our life that keep us from loving the other the way Jesus yeah. does. And then yeah. as we learn that, then we can, it's not like a pure informational thing that you can just roll out and scale. 
I'd like to say there's no right. silver bullet, but there's a golden sword. It's like, okay, who is the person that you need to deeply empathize with that you don't want to, that if you do that, Christ will be propagated into their life. Right. And, like, do that, write it down, document how you did it, and let's just keep getting better at that so that more and more people can start practice. It's a practice, not a principle. Yeah. I think this is the practice that I want to build uh, the next phase transition in the body of Christ around. Yeah. Good. All right. Thanks for listening. And uh, I will see you on the other side when I get back from Europe. Yeah. How long are you gone and what are you going for? Um, I'm, my new job, which is in the data space, it's all crazy. It overlaps with a lot of this stuff. Uh, I'm gone okay. for 10 days to a series of conferences in Europe. We're going to meet our, our team of Russian engineers who like literally just escaped before the mobilization ban trapped them there indefinitely. Uh, oh, wow. They're going to be meeting us in Turkey. So, yeah, it was a crazy couple of weeks. But Vladimir uh-huh. Putin uh, really helped us uh, uh, clarify a bunch of things. So it was, I actually feel like I owe him one, even if it was unintentional on his part. Right. Right. All right. Bless you, Dan. Have a great trip. God bless you. Uh, have a great couple of weeks. And I'll still, I should still have cell service, so keep texting me as things evolve. Right. Right. Okay. Yep. I'm excited. Things are going to be going well with your family, and you're having some good times connecting. So I'm excited to yeah. hear how that progresses. Yeah. All right. All right. And you comfortable right. with me posting this online? Uh, no. No, that's great. Yep. All right. Thank you. I mean, you are comfortable with me posting it. No concerns. Thank you. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Bye. Thank you.